Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, really great to be with you this morning. For those of you I don't know, my name is uh, Chris Brockway. I have the real joy and the privilege of being involved in the leading of the church here with the rest of the trustees and the staff team. Uh, a great privilege as well this morning to be able to open up God's word to you. Well, I uh, really admire people who can say an awful lot in just a few words. I wonder if you know what I mean. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not one of those people. Uh, in the psalm that we're looking at today, the psalmist is able to do exactly that, though, with an enviable economy. He's incredibly succinct and yet has so much to say about the eternal God with whom we're invited into relationship with. So our psalm today, as we draw our sermon series towards a close, is Psalm 93. So feel free to uh, look up the passage. We're going to read the whole psalm. Uh, you can look it up in a real Bible or an electronic Bible if you want to click the Bible tag um, on the chat platform. Psalm 93, a psalm of adoration, says this. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, it's firm and it's secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have been lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have filled up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. Well, five fairly short verses of scripture that are just gushing, aren't they, with adoration. Those of us who have been joining in with the prayer course for the last three, few weeks might remember that last Monday we were thinking about the theme of adoration. When we speak out prayers of adoration, or in the psalmist case today, when we write a piece of poetry which is adoration... We're simply telling God how awesome he is and how much we delight in being in relationship with him. On Monday, we learned that kneeling in adoration, or we might say bowing down before God, brings things into their proper perspective. And that's what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 93. I can picture him in my mind's eye kneeling down or bowing down before God. And it's from this position that he's able to best worship God. It's from this position that all things fall into perspective. But in doing so, and as he captures these words, he reveals for us some wonderful truths that I really think we need to grab hold of about God. One theologian has said this about Psalm 93. They said, this brief psalm is mighty in utterance. It's colourful in language. And it is a strong incentive for faith, a strong incentive to faith. And then the theologian closes by saying its opening sentence is its theme. The Lord reigns forever. He is robed in majesty forever. That's the theme of this psalm. So what are these truths that we need to grab hold of this morning? Well, being a good Baptist, I've got three for you. And the first is this is that God is king. And this comes to us in verses one to two. God is king. Now, the vast majority, of course, would uh, not disagree with my first point, especially those of us who have come to faith in Christ. God is king. And the psalmist says that pretty clearly, doesn't he? He is clothed in majesty. 
In other words, he's speaking here of somebody who's lifted up, someone who has dignity and authority and sovereign power and stature and stateliness and grandeur. The psalmist here is picturing God who is fully and majestically clothed in royal robes, fully encircled in glorious splendor. It's really quite an image, isn't it? But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that not only is the Lord dressed like a king, but he also has the strength or the character of a king. In other words, this is no fancy dress party. God really is who he's dressed up to be in his character. His character matches his outfit. The psalmist here is speaking of firmness and security and fortification and protection. Aren't these wonderfully strong words? Aren't these really good words for us to hear at this moment in our history? That our God is the God above all other gods and he is a God who is mighty in power. The psalmist writes, surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved in verse 1. Oh, how we need to hear these words today, that the world is established and it cannot be moved. It will not be shaken. Isn't this just such a, a word in season for us? Though the world may be changing, though the world might be thrown into chaos because of coronavirus and protests and riots on our streets, the reign of God is not affected by these things. The God who created this world is the God who is still sustaining the world. He won't for a moment think about disrobing himself and neither will he put down his glory or his strength. Creation is not independent of God, we can say, but it's very much dependent upon him. God is working out his plans and his purposes from his eternal throne and we're invited into relationship with him as he does it. How exciting is that, that that's the relationship we're invited into? Now, the reality is that the majority of Christians, of course, sing songs about all these realities uh, fairly often. The really keen ones of us will have stickers on the back of our cars proclaiming exactly this message that God is king. There will be very few of us who haven't at some point in our lives said exactly these words in prayer or maybe in conversation with others, that God, you are king. You're my king and to you I surrender to your rule in my life. And yet I wonder how many of us are aware of the real implications of this truth and living our lives as if God really is king. Yes, God reigns. Yes, God is king. But what does that mean for us, practically speaking? Now, one of the things I'm often mocked for in my life is the use of punctuation in my emails. I use exclamation marks an awful lot. And if you don't believe me, just go back and have a look at the emails or the text that I might have sent you, and you will see them there in an abundance. And if I'm really honest, the lack of exclamation marks in this psalm really, really bothers me. If I'd written the psalm, it would have contained at least seven exclamation marks within the first two verses, not to mention the rest of the psalm. Exclamation marks are brilliant when we want to express adoration to our God. And I think we should use them more often. It's not hard, is it, to imagine the Jews after the exile singing this song on the Sabbath evening. That's where theologians uh, believe this psalm was written and the context it was written into. I guess in this moment they could have filled the air with question marks, but they didn't. Instead, they went for exclamation marks. They needed this reminder, even in the struggles and the challenges of life, 
that their God is king. We need this reminder, even as we face up to coronavirus, as our way of living has been thrown into chaos, and even there's a state of fear. The Lord reigns, exclamation mark. God is king, exclamation mark. He is robed in majesty, exclamation mark. He cannot and will not be moved, exclamation mark. And of course, the reality is, is that all too often we easily lose sight of the fact that the Lord reigns. Instead of throwing out exclamation marks of adoration, we can opt to use question marks expressing our doubt of this truth. And in some ways, of course, that's understandable. Life circumstances have their impact upon us. And sometimes even when we say the words with our lips that God is king or that he reigns, we might not actually believe those things in our hearts. Perhaps even in recent days, you've received bad news on a personal level. Maybe you're facing the daily and often monotonous grind of life. Perhaps you're disillusioned even by the lack of excitement that there is in the midst of the mundane. Perhaps setbacks for yourself or in your workplace or even in the life of the church have led you to the point of discouragement. If we switch on the news, it, it seems to indicate to us that the wicked are prospering whilst the righteous languish. But it's at precisely times like this when rather than coming to God only with question marks, that actually we punctuate our coming to him with exclamation marks. It's good to come to God and to remind ourselves that he still reigns. It's good to come to God and say that he really is still king. Just maybe, in spite of what Kay encouraged you to do at the beginning of this message, not to use the chat, maybe you want to respond in this moment just by chucking out a few exclamation marks in the chat function if you're watching online. Our God is king, not question mark, but exclamation mark, a sign of adoration. The opening verses of this psalm indicate that we're to remember some very basic but all-important God truths about God and his reign. We need to start in our uh, worship in our journey of God with adoration by saying that God is king. And then once we've done that, maybe then we're ready to go on to plunder the encouragement of verses three and four, which remind us that life can be tough. But, and here's my second point, God is above all of our storms. God is above our storms, verses three to four. And these two verses, I think, tell us something really important that we shouldn't miss. They tell us that everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. And I just wonder how many of us this morning need to hear that truth. The psalmist says here, having declared already that God is king, he says, look up and look beyond the troubles that you immediately face. He's saying the seas are stormy. Yes, you're in a difficult place, but the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters and his voice is mightier um, even than the storms that we face. Now, I don't suppose there are many things in life that are more intimidating than floods or waves or even tsunamis, especially those ones that have lifted up their voice and become very angry. It's a powerful metaphor, isn't it, that the psalmist is using here. It's a, a disturbing metaphor in many ways. But here the psalmist is encouraging us to remind ourselves that the Lord is, is mightier than these storms. And we really need to hear this. We need to both listen up, but also we need to look up. Even as the Almighty controls the raging waters of every single sort, so he remains 
um, full of control over every force that might arise to challenge his authority. And the psalmist is saying to us here in his words of adoration to God, look, as you face the storms, as we seek to make sense of this new normal which has been forced upon us, which this challenge and this problem of racism has caused in our lives at this moment, lift up your eyes and remember that the Lord is still in control of his creation. Remember that everything is going to be okay. Perhaps the challenge when we face the storms of life is to remember a few things in the right order. To listen up, to remind ourselves that the Lord reigns, that he is king. That's a fact. But then to look up and to remember that God is the God above of our storms and he hasn't lost control. And then thirdly, to lift up our voices, to ask for help, but not to forget to keep on praising him and offering him exclamation marks even in the storm. There's a wonderful story that's captured in the Gospels that I think illustrates beautifully that God is the God who's in control and that he hasn't forgotten us. And it's recorded in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And it says this, That day when evening came, he, that's Jesus, says to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it it was nearly swamped. Here's the best line in the whole of scripture. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. (laughs) What remarkable detail. He was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. He wasn't phased. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down instantly and it was completely calm. Jesus spoke and it became calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, I don't think in this moment that Jesus was disturbed because they woke him. He wasn't uh, the grumpy saviour who's kind of waking up from his deep slumber, as uh, some people in our household do when you wake them up. I don't think that Jesus was disturbed even because they were asking for his assistance. But Jesus, it says in the text, was disturbed because of their lack of faith. It was their doubt, in a sense, of his care for them in this storm that was so distressing. And they asked this question, do you not care, they say to him. I mean, it's almost an offensive question, isn't it? Certainly to us who have the hindsight of knowing what was going to happen, because Jesus would go on and demonstrate that he cared in just a few weeks by dying on the cross. But perhaps the greatest learning point that the disciples had in this moment is that God is the God who is above the storms that we face in life. And although they might well unsettle us, actually, they don't unsettle Jesus. And in a moment, he can speak to the storm and they can be calm. You know, as Christians, I think we face a challenge. We're called to live in the world, but not to be of the world. I don't think we should ever just bury our heads in the proverbial sand when it comes to the troubles in this world and pretend they're not there. Neither should we just gaze hopelessly towards the horizon, knowing that better days are coming and and to ignore the troubles that are facing us. But I think we do need to get into the habit of looking up to the one who controls everything, even in the storm. 
as we look up and as we claim the promises of God, that even in the storms, we can hear this promise, it's going to be okay because I'm the God who is above the storm. Catherine Booth, who uh, co-founded the Salvation Army, said this on one occasion, and I think this is brilliant. She said, the waters are rising, but so am I. I am not going under, but I am going over. What a great quote. The waters are rising, but so am I. I'm not going under, but over. What a great perspective as we face the challenges of life. I'm not going under, but I'm going over. God in this psalm, I believe, wants to say to us, because I am king, everything's going to be okay. And then thirdly, we need to remind ourselves from this psalm that God has the final word forever. In the closing verse, in verse 5, we we move from the earth-shaking turbulence of verses 3 and 4 to the most hope-bringing eternal truth. It says in verse 5, Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You can put as many evers in there as you like. The writer moves from turbulence to eternal truth, having already started in that place of affirming that God is king. And my sense is that needs to be our approach to life. Let's affirm that God is king. Let's be honest in the turbulence, but remind ourselves it's going to be okay. And then let's remind ourselves of these eternal truths, thinking of this word forever. The message version of this verse is absolutely brilliant. It says this, it says, you say uh, what you say goes, it always has. In other words, God has always had the final word in the past. But then the psalmist goes on in the message version and says, beauty and holiness mark your palace rule. God is a God who rules with holiness and with fairness in the present. The eternal God of the past, the eternal God of the present. And then we get to you are God to the very end of time in the message version. God always will have the final word in the future. What's brilliant about this psalm is it finishes with the word forever. Isn't that just the best word to describe our Lord, that he is the forever God? Just think for a moment about everything else which is forever. I bet you can't think of a single thing that lasts forever without involving God himself in it. Everything we see, everything we have, everyone that we know who is passing from this world, the only hope of everything eternal is found in Jesus. And by coming into relationship with him, we can find ourselves eternally secure, not just for a moment, but forever. When we look at our God, we see one who has permanent, everlasting, eternal power. As we were reminded in those opening words of Psalm 145, he will never abdicate his office. He will never, ever resign from his position. He will never, ever disrobe from being majestic. No one can overcome our God. No one is ever going to overthrow him or remove him. He can never, ever be impeached. And history has proven time and time again that those who rise against him ultimately will fall. Everything's going to be okay because our God is a God who reigns with a plan. And he's informed us that every single one of us who come to him through the grace that Jesus Christ offers and the relationship that Christ offers will one day reign with him forever. No one can thwart the intentions and the plans of our God. How wonderful it is to know that we serve 
an everlasting king on an everlasting throne with an everlasting plan that includes us forever. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him?